Brown Genius is a podcast in full color spectrum dedicated to providing a platform for underrepresented voices. This Chicano Picasso production is brought to you with generous support from the Arts Affinity Group. Thank you for listening. One, two, one. Many sick, many sick. One go for many drink, many drink. Diversify scope, money straight, money straight. Proper simple, human being, human being. So fresh, so clean. My mind, limousine, my quasar, so my crown, I king, my beam, so mean. My gangster lane, I bomb your scene. My people get free, root the tradition. Set the condition. Break the system. Forward transmission. Orale familia, this is Molina Speaks. This is Cherie, love mestiza, brown. Brown Genius is back again in full effect, and we are blessed this evening to have Mr. Stevan Lucero in the building. Stevan Lucero has been painting for over 50 years. Since childhood, he's experienced lucid dreams and visions and ventured more than once into separate realities. Through these revelations and studies of metaphysical, philosophical, and historical media, he has been guided to create two unique art forms, metarealism and neo-pre-Columbian or Aztec art. Stevan is on a spiritual journey. More than a visual artist, he is in truth a philosopher artist. Each painting reflects a metaphor of his own internal dialogue between himself and God. Each piece tells a story in which the ultimate intent and value lies in the future when people will have a greater understanding and appreciation for true spiritual art. Welcome. <laughs> Hi, how are you doing? Thank you for being here. My, my um, pleasure. My honor. Yes. Uh, to begin, just, you know, with a very simple question, um, what should we know about you, Stevan Lucero, of this third dimension? <laughs> <laughs> uh, right off the top, uh, uh, self-evaluation. <laughs> that's a problem. That's a problem for me because I've, I've spent my whole life with a, a, an obsession. It's a God obsession, this whole spirituality thing. I became obsessed with this idea when I was really young that I was going to be the guy that puts God back into art. And there's a whole story behind that. But one of the things that I've learned and one of the clashes about being an artist is that being an artist is one of the most egocentric things you can do in this culture. We put, we either crush artists under total rejection or we raise them up on pedestals and make them kings and queens of, of the culture. And if you're a, an artist that says he's spiritual, it means you're oriented towards content. It means you're oriented towards meaning. You're trying to say something to people which has significance. But how do you do that with humility? There's an inherent egotism in all art. And... Um, so there becomes a question of balance of trying to say, okay, I do this, I will do a show, I will answer your questions, I will explain this, I'll explain that. But I'm nobody. I'm not important. I am just this little fat Mexican just trying to say, you know, we're, we're, I'm not dumb. And I have a lot of love in me. But for some reason, I feel that this is important. And, and I'm going to express it and I'm going to give it to you. And... Uh, and hopefully it has value Absolutely. and and not value to my ego, 
but to value in terms of, uh, you know, uh, opening up people's minds to God. Uh, when I was little, <clears throat> I started to have these dreams, these reoccurring dreams, going back to this, what we were talking about earlier about dream states. And I love these dreams because I had a very, very oppressed childhood. I won't go into all of that, but I was abused in many ways. And my refuge was always God. I was always saying, you know, help me, you know, making my prayers, whatever. And I started having these reoccurring dreams where I dreamed where this UFO would come. And I'd be walking down a street or I'd be in my room or I'd be in a building or whatever. A UFO would come and zap me with a beam of light. Sometimes it would pick me up and take me into it, and it would fly away, and then it would come back later and then drop me off, or it would just zap me, and I'd be hanging there like a, like a ghost dancer or a, a sun dancer, you know, being pierced and hanging there in the air. And, uh, and in all of these dreams, they all repeated the same pattern, but the details were always different. The scene was always a different scene, but the same scene. <clears throat> and this UFO would leave me in a heap, at the end of this, whatever this episode was, I never saw any aliens. I don't recall what seeing the inside of any ship or anything like that. But I would be laying on the, on the ground in this smoldering heap. And, and people would come up to me, oh, my God, is he dead? Is he alive? And they'd put me, take me to the hospital. And I'd be in the hospital for a year. And I would just be sitting in bed, and they would, I'd be in a coma. And there would be this little old woman that was sitting at the foot of my bed and she'd like the, the the classic Mexican, you know, peasant. She was dressed in a black shroud and she was sitting there and she was real quiet. She never looked up and she always sat there at my feet like she was protecting me. She was like a mother symbol. And I'd be in this coma and people would come in and see me. And then the next thing I knew, I would be in this other world. And in this other world, I was standing there with all these other people. We were all standing there wearing long white robes and we were talking. And all of a sudden, you'd hear these these trumpets. And everybody would stop their talking. They'd put their hands in front of them like this, and they would bow their heads. And this person that they called the master came walking by, and he emitted so much light, you couldn't look at him. It was like looking into the sun. And everybody would look away. And you just, but as he came near you, you would just feel this elation, this kind of bliss, this joy, this, this, it was unfathomable. I can't, I, when I talk about this, I still remember it. I feel it. Okay. I'm doing that right now. <laughs> and um, as he would walk by, you would feel this. And then all of a sudden he stopped and he stopped right in front of me. And he says, he called me and I was freaking out. I was like, He's talking to me. What am I going to do? Oh, my God. What am I, you know, and I, 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 you can't resist. So I walked over to him and he says, walk with me. So I walked with him and he proceeded to tell me about the creation. He told me everything that happened, everything, why it was happening, with everything that was going to happen. And we walked for a year. While I was in that coma, I was walking with this, this master. And then he came to a point and he says, okay. You're going back now. And he says, you're not going to remember any of this. He says, but as long as you hold me in your heart, you'll know what to say and when to say it and what to do and what, what and when to do it. That's all you got to know. And I said, but this is just a dream, right? And he says, oh, it's right. He says, okay, go back. And the next thing I knew, I, was in, I woke up from my coma. When I woke up from my coma, 
Now, I forgot to mention that when I would get zapped, all the hair would be burned off my body. I would be totally hairless everywhere, eyebrows, head, everything. But when I woke up, my hair would have all grown back and it was all white, snow white. Everything was white. And I would get up, and sometimes I was an artist, sometimes I was a musician, sometimes. I, but what I did is I became this wandering kind of minstrel. And more often than not, I would play guitar. And I would walk around, and when I'd meet people, I would sing them a song. And in this song, they would see their souls. And they would come to the awareness that they had a soul. And therefore, they had to make a choice. Do you develop that soul, or do you just bypass it, let it go? But that's what my job was. That's what I did. That's what I always came out of. And I used art as a vehicle for singing those songs. I had that dream over and over and over again. I had it about maybe three to four times a year from the ages of 13 to 17. And then at 17, they abruptly stopped. As my life has unfolded, when I, from the late 60s, when I started painting, as my life has unfolded, people say, what are you doing? Why are you doing this weird art? Even my mother, why are you painting these crazy paintings? Paint nice, pretty pictures, you can make money. And I've been told, and I had famous artists say, you know, if you do this other stuff, you're going to be rich. You do what you're doing. C'est la vie, you know. And But what I do is people look at the art and they say, what are you doing? So then I explain it. But when I explain it, I get the spirit. Somehow, some way. And in some way, I get them to look at the idea that they have a soul. Now, why is that so important? Because I think the single most important thing, when people say, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose? What am I doing here? Why do I exist? You only have one major reason, and that is to develop your soul. Because you're going to die. Everyone is going to die. And before you get to that point, You've got to figure out how to make that self, that idea that you call you, that self-aware. You are a self-realized idea. You're not your body. You're not your, your, your flesh and blood. You are what you think you are. And you have to convince that and, and shift that from material body to a spiritual body. We do that in everything that we do. But you affirm it with your spiritual acts. You affirm it with your prayers. You affirm it with your kindness. You affirm it with your love. When you die, all your physical experiences are going to go. They go. They die with the engrams of the brain. But the spirit remains. Either it goes back to God as an empty shell. There's nothing there because you didn't do anything. Or there's a person there who's fulfilled themselves. And that's what I want my art to do to people. It wakens people. So... This is what I'm doing. I'm fulfilling the dream. Oh, at the end of those dreams, by the way, they all ended in one returning vision or visual. I would be walking along a seashore. And you know how, like, when you walk in the, uh, on the ocean, and there, there's uh, these ripples of water that go around your legs, and you kind of form this little, mm-hmm. this little wave as you're walking through the water? I was walking through the water, and the water would form these little waves, and the waves would, would turn. And as they turned... People would pop up, and they would be doing different creative things, different forms of art. It doesn't matter what the art is. It, the, it, the point is, is doing something creative, working with your hands, 
whether you're a writer, a painter, a, a furniture maker, a shoemaker, a baker, a mother, that all of those things that we shifted from just doing them as labors and realizing that what we're doing is art, that when we align ourselves with the creative energy of the universe, because the universe is constantly creating, when we align ourselves with that, the soul awakens. And one of the things that I've learned after all the years I've been painting, when I meet another artist who's been doing his craft for a long time, it doesn't matter if he's a portrait painter or a santero or uh, um, uh, um, an abstract artist, a uh, uh, surreal artist. It doesn't matter. They've all discovered truth. And the truth comes from working because we all share one thing. We all work in solitude. Every creative thinker, it's them and God. And you say, where do you get those ideas from? Well, it comes from spirit. Well, how do you define that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> spirit doesn't have matter. It can't be defined. It is a mystery, just like the priests say. And in that, we find ourselves. And like Buddha said, and like Jesus said, and all of the great teachers said, know thyself. And every artist in time, if he doesn't quit, he doesn't give up the spirit. And regardless of what his motivations were when he started, you know, fame, fortune, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever. Eventually he goes, ah, truth. I found truth. They become a different person. And the way they see the world is different. And one of the things that they all talk about, they all get to, the common denominator is they all talk about love. And they know that love is the base of everything. All right. That, that was all really beautiful. I, I really resonate with a lot of what you um, have been saying. And uh, I kind of wanted to um, just take it a little bit further and, and ask you specifically about your art and when did you start painting and, and, and how did the um, metarealism come into play? Because, you know, I know in terms of my experience of your art, I, I really appreciated the way that you spoke about like the reflection and and being reminded and awakened just by these these uh, vehicles of art and and when i experience your paintings i've been experiencing the world of surrealism in a very beautiful way uh, over the past few years and for a while you know it was just a very surface level appreciation of something so jarring and so different and i couldn't i couldn't place or understand why that that strangeness felt so interesting and comfortable to me and then as time went on i i i i guess i'm i'm understanding that this this reflection this this breaking apart and reordering of reality um is it's it's really a reminder to me of the illusory nature of this of this realm the illusions that we're constantly uh being confined to and confined by and and so surrealism reminds me to uh activate my imagination it reminds me to um, remain in a state of limitlessness when it comes to you and your connection to God. In doing so, you invite really beautiful experiences with God. And so uh, that's that's one aspect of my relationship with, with surrealist art is it stretches me. You know, it stretches me and in a way that I constantly need to be stretched and reminded. And um, so I, I definitely want to 
hear your thoughts on um, how and when you began painting in this meta-realist way and, 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 you know, how did you learn to deconstruct reality with paint, you know? <laughs> how did that happen? The, the story of meta-realism? <laughs> yes. Actually, uh, it, it stems from that story you read on my website uh, about the grid. That experience, I started to notice things differently. I started to notice subtleties, like symmetry. Why is everything divided the way it is? And some of the things didn't make sense to me and stuff. And that questioning of saying, well, there's the rock, but let's look underneath it and see what's going on there. And he discovers all this stuff going on. There's little worms and bugs and dead things, you know. And, and, and that complexity, that recognizing. You know, one time I was watching my, my uh, some people, I should say members of my family, saying nasty things about each other. And I was trying to figure out why. They're supposed to all love each other. They're supposed to be family. And I remember walking home uh, after my grandmother gave me a, a scolding about my intrusion into their business. That It suddenly occurred to me, oh, they do this because they're carrying their pain and they don't know how to, what to do with it, so they give it to each other. And that's why people gossip. That's why people do bad things to each other. They, they want to transfer that. It's those things that I began to notice, that there's an underlying thing going on. I didn't know the word for that. It was called metaphysics, okay? And then when I got into high school and I started taking it, painting more seriously, and then going back to when in 67 when I started really painting, the very first painting I did uh, I don't know if you saw it. Last month at Chalk, I, I had a painting called The Mask. It was a 12 by 16. That's the very first painting I ever did. That was the painting that I did out of the, 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 the canvas. I discovered it the day, and I went, ah, look at this. And I framed it and put it, displayed it for the first time in, like, over 40 years. And um, so right from the onset, I was into symbology. And I didn't know it was symbology. It was just an intuition. It was just following what I instinctively was feeling. And I instinctively gravitated towards the surrealists, you know, from Dali, Max Ernst, uh, you know, uh, the whole gamut of them, you know, Kandinsky, all of, all of the, the abstract artist stuff. I, I understood what they were doing. I understood a language. Magritte, for example. I remember one time I was looking through a book of his. I was a little loaded, but... but I understood everything he was saying. I, it was like a language. It was like a dream language. And all of a sudden, I had a sense for it. I had a feeling for it. And uh, then I saw a, a magazine article uh, by a group of artists known as the uh, the Fantastic Realists. And uh, there was uh, 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 Robert Venosa was part of that, a guy named Schwartenberger, uh, uh, Mati. Mati was famous for doing that famous uh, Santana cover. Uh, of a praxis, and 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 he blew me away, because I thought, oh, these guys are doing something even deeper, something more significant, and and plus I was getting deeper and deeper into my own symbology, creating my own symbols. Now, most people who get into symbology of any kind, they go find some book, some psychologist books who said this means this and this means that and dream interpretation stuff. I wasn't doing that. I was using my intuitions. I was like using colors as symbols. I was using where I placed something on the canvas as a symbol. How many inches from this edge for, as opposed to what the line was on the bottom and how many inches it was. For, I started seeing the entire canvas as a, a flat two-dimensional thing that you could move in all kinds of directions. 
but I didn't, like I said, this was all intuition. This was just my head following these these things, which I thought were an offshoot of, of surrealism. Then you get into the history of surrealism. Surrealism was born as a byproduct of the Industrial Revolution. When the Industrial Revolution came in, they, this whole new form of alienation came into culture and stuff, and, and the existentialists emerged, and the whole question, and the whole God is dead thing came in, and all this other stuff. And all this scary negativism, this, this, this preoccupation with matter, uh, and it was, and then plus with science coming in and just, there was this constant bombarding of anything that was spiritual. Now, the original surrealists were very spiritual. Kandinsky, for example, was very spiritual. You know, a lot of these guys were very spiritual. Dali was off his rocker in his spirituality, you know. Uh, but I began to sense that there's something deeper. And that surrealism was locked into the understanding and exploration of the subconscious. In the subconscious, there are no parameters. All the all the limitations are raised. You can explore whatever, and you know Freud. Freud and Jung were the great impetus and all of that that kind of thinking, which is. And I love Carl Jung. I was a big fan of Carl Jung. I didn't like Freud very much. I thought he was a little oversexed, and uh, you know the. That, but the symbology that I, I, I was getting into was really, but I kept feeling this isn't quite it. And I noticed also in history, when you go back to the Renaissance, you know, the Renaissance was the point where they say, the way they described it in the books was, it was when man turned his vision from the inward, looking inwardly in all of this religion and spirituality and stuff like that, and started to look at the phenomenal world. And he started to look at perspective, and you know, Giotto was exploring perspective and stuff like this, and all these different artists, and and, so, and God only became an accessory to that process. That he was a, he was the 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 the, the object of of you know content for the images, but the real exploration was in the physicality of the world. And as that continued to progress, eventually, it eventually takes us to modernism. So you have a polarity here. Modernism over here, or Renaissance on one end, and that shift from inward to outward, and then that that beginning a whole new process, which goes takes us to modern art, and the ultimate modern expression was minimalism, which was big in the sixties. That's when people would put up blank canvases and say, "Imagine a painting there," you know, and people will go, "Oh wow, that's brilliant," you know, and, and they would they would go for it, and we still have a lot of that. That intellectual, I call it intellectual fraud. It's just the manipulation of those who want to be above other people, so they create these highfalutin concepts to that that only they can conceptualize and imagine, and therefore everybody else is inferior, and and have created social status and structure. Look, the Renaissance happened because of the Medici's who financed the artists, and these guys discovered that it isn't just a matter of buying somebody's art and putting it up for you. You get prestige out of it. And in those days, great wealth, you could have all the great wealth and be richer than the king or the pope or anybody else, but it didn't mean anything. Wealth was just wealth. But prestige, that was the magic of wealth. And you got prestige when you could put up a new Michelangelo or Da Vinci or, or you know, Raphael, you know, and, and, and people would talk about it and create all these highfalutin concepts. And, and that whole realm, that whole illusionary realm of those who don't do copying prestige and authority and power from those who do create. Because there was a magic in the creativity. They understood that. So, and surrealism was basically a reaction to all of that. 
I said, but that's basically a polarity. Now, in my definition of metarealism, and the only reason I wrote a definition, because the very first time I did a show here in Denver, the guy who hosted my show was a place called Zach's back in 1976. He said, what is this stuff? This is weird stuff. And I said, well, I call it metaphysical fantastic realism. No, no, actually, before that, another guy asked me about that. My very first show I did in Wyoming, he said, what is this stuff? And I said, I call it metaphysical fantastic realism. And it was sort of inspired by, the, like I said earlier, the metaphysical movement, the, the fantastic realism movement. And he said, oh, this guy, he says, so sort of metareal. Yeah, I said, yeah, that's it, that's it. I said, can I have that? He said, yeah, sure, take it. His name was Rod Luther. He deserves credit for that. And then so it's got a guy comes to, well, what does that mean? So all of a sudden I said, oh, crap. <laughs> you know, it's not enough I give it a name. They wanted, they wanted to have a meaning now. So I sat down and I wrote, and this was in 1977, Metarealism is the externalization of interior realities via visual mystic metaphors born of a philosophic state that I call polar synthesis. They are neither reflections of the conscious mind as in traditional art, nor of the subconscious as in surrealism, but rather reflecting the continuum by which that polarity exists. The idea is, is that when you recognize that the polarity is actually one, and Buddha taught this, Christ taught this, when the polarity is actually one, you've created a whole new thing. And that whole new thing automatically creates a whole new polarity. And you go from one to the other, and you change, and you progress. And that's progression. Ideas give birth to their counters and their counters. They fuse together. They become something else, and they evolve. An idea produces problems, the problems produce answers, the answers produce new polarities. And I said, this is what metarealism, it talks about the continuum which binds those two realities. And what is that? I said, that's spirit. And Jesus said, the kingdom is within. And I said, okay, well then let's bring it out. Let's create God culture. Now, what does that mean? I'm not talking about religious culture. I'm not talking about people walking around in robes and, and, and crucifixes and, you know, or, or, you know, Buddhist beads or whatever. I'm talking about a culture that takes the ideals that all these religions preach, the ideal of love, the ideal of compassion. Compassion didn't exist in the world until Jesus introduced it, you know, except maybe in India with Buddha. Uh, all of these ideas, they change us, they make us, they they take us to they bring they take us to that kingdom. So metarealism was the idea of, okay, let's bring the kingdom out. If we all have that goodness within us, if we all have that spirit within us, and we start to develop it and we give ourselves to it and we make it, the things that we create through that act of goodness, that's meta real. Because it takes the metaphysical and it makes it real. It makes it into part of the real world. That was the one thing I was afraid of about this interview is that I get so caught up in my ideas, and as they start to flood in, I, I will lose track of where I'll lose the string of when it'll come back in a second. It's all it's all relevant. It's all related. Yeah. And, uh, um, I mean, for me, I'm just really I'm enjoying the the journey of hearing you speak. You know, and I feel like when you're on a spiritual path, it's like things kind of come to you when you're ready for them. Yeah. And um, you know, a lot of what you're going to go yeah, with when you're not looking. Right. You know? yeah, that, that happens too. You know, but I feel like uh, both, you know, myself and Ms. Um, Brown, um, definitely ready to receive a lot of what you have to say. And uh, it, it wouldn't been, it wouldn't have been time to 
interview you or um, soak up some of this knowledge from you, you know, years ago, even months ago. But it's, it's kind of right on time, and I feel like a lot of our listeners will um, be there as well. Uh, when you were talking about metarealism and just this, oh, uh, yeah, go okay, ahead, yes, sir. Come back. The ex- why metarealism? You know. Uh, I I wanted to 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 do something that created a new bridge that allowed uh, an expression that was mar- was not just surrealism in terms of a psychological construct, but as a, as a, a uh, an actual relationship that the individual was going through. The way they taking their spiritual experience and creating visual metaphors of that experience. If you look at every one of all my paintings, and one of the things that I, I don't want to use the word pride, but I'm kind of proud of is that when you look at a lot of artists, you'll see images, and the the images they do will be redundant. You know, once a guy hits on a particular stylization, and bam, they do it over and over and over again. Every painting that I do is different. Every painting reflects a different state of consciousness, different experience, different whatever. But I also hide it in the symbology and and and, and, and the metaphors so that the viewer can take that image and make it their own. That they can sit there instead of interpreting something one way, that way I saw it, and see it in another way. It's happened to me once, an older gentleman once, who didn't like my work, and then he was looking at a piece. He says, what does that piece mean to you? And I gave him my meaning. He says, well, that isn't what it means to me. And he gave me his meaning. And in the course of doing that, he liked the painting afterwards. All of a sudden, it took on a new dimension for him. And he says, this is just really good. And I said, good. That's what I wanted. I wanted the piece to be a little key that opens up an aspect of your own thinking. But I also felt that it was also a way of helping to move the world towards, like my dream vision of the the waves, of where we create a culture that's not based upon death, not based upon violence, but based upon love, which is based upon life. Everything in creation is creating. We need to do the same thing. And... When we do that, we'll discover that there's a radiance within all of us that can make a world we just can't imagine how beautiful it could be. So uh, hopefully that's what, you know, metarealism, I'm trying, I have a friend who says, this isn't metarealism, your metarealism is just surrealism. And I said, no, it's not. I'm sorry. That's a psychologically based thing. This is a spiritually based thing. Mm-hmm. That belongs, and the spiritually based thing belongs to God. Scott, my words like sperm attached to egg and birth of fetus. To Scott Lipoca speaks. I hope this reaches even one unexpected genius. <laughs> uh, it's a line from a song called What the Thelonious. And um, that, that came to me as you were talking about uh, your uh, work within this uh, meta-realism field. And uh, one, one question I wanted to ask you, you know, is you're, you're taking us through this uh, kind of history of, of uh, religion and spirituality, this evolution. Um, and, you know, we're, we're kind of jumping back and forth, moving through time and space, talking about art, uh, spirituality, love. And um, I'm wondering if, if you feel that uh, this world that, that some of us are trying to create artistically, this world that, that we imagine in the future, if it already exists either here or perhaps on another physical plane or in another in another uh, parallel universe of some sort. Now, that's funny because that moment that I had where I lost my thought, there, w- there was a, a piece there that it didn't quite get back. 
But see, the Spirit wanted to move you that way because you just brought it to that point. And that was the part I left out. I was saying that people always talk about, why does God, why is all this pain? Why is all this suffering? Why does all this, what's that all about? And well, God didn't do that. We do that. Well, what's going to happen? It's going to let it, it's going to end in an apocalypse. Everything's going to be destroyed. The thing is that it occurred to me many, many years ago, that one of the things that they say about the omni, omniscience, omniscience of God is that the past, that we, you know, we travel through time linearly. We go to A to B to C. We live each moment, moment by moment by moment. We take one step at a time. God doesn't do that. The past, present, and future are all simultaneous. God knows what's going to happen. Everybody always says, well, God knows what's going to happen. God already won. All these problems and all these things that freak us out and, you know, World War III and all this other stuff. Uh, yeah, okay, we'll maybe have to go through that step by step by step. But in the end, God wins. Period. Boom. How it happens, none of us know. That's why we're all players on the field. You know, the, the, the Trappist monk once said, he said, the objective of, the, of a good Christian is to become careless. He said, I don't mean careless in terms of, you know, being incautious or stupid or whatever. So I mean careless in terms of leaving it in God's hands, that the Spirit will take care of it. And part of it is recognizing that there are powers of play that are greater than our own. And even the stuff that is is ugly and is, is whatever, there's other things that fall into place. There's other things that happen. We don't see the, the, the positives out of a lot of the negatives. Like, I'm a big, uh, I became obsessed with World War II. And, you know, like, what happened there? What drove the world to, to that insanity, that madness, to allow a guy like Hitler to jack everything up? And you look at that and you look at, you know, 60 million people died there. You know, 50 million people died, 60 million people died. And it was horrible. But you know what? Because of Hitler, colonialization ended. Didn't mean the United States didn't get up and try to play empire after World War II, which now we're getting that on our, thrown in our face now with the stuff that's going on now. But England lost its colonies. France lost its colonies. Holland all these countries, all the indigenous peoples and the people of color since World War II, since they dropped the bomb. I used to always tell people, when they dropped the atomic bomb, they cracked the cosmic egg. Everything changed when they dropped the bomb because death became absolute. We can't play around with this stuff anymore. War is now obsolete. You can't resolve differences by killing each other. It's, it's, it's like you could rationalize that in the past. You cannot rationalize it now. We opened up the Pandora's box. So what we've been doing ever since then, after that was the civil rights movement, the change, the 60s happened. People don't really remember the, the 60s properly. It was a renaissance. It was a lot of beauty there, but it's been propagandized in terms of what was going on there and stuff. And, you know, and, and all through history, people, the victors are the ones who always put the slant on the history. But when you go back and you read and study history objectively, you start to discover all these little things that they're not telling you about, you know? And you go, oh, wow, and if this hadn't have happened, this would happen. Oh, this happened. Oh! And then you start to see all these connections. That's why I was saying to you earlier, you know, man's always had the vision of, of, a, of a planetary world. You know, you read a lot of science fiction, which I have done, um, you, there's always this reoccurring theme of the world was the world was united into one world and all the nations were one there was no nations and it was and and races were you know the, the Star Trek world you know 
And, uh, and he says, well, how do you get there? Well, the institutions are not going to allow that to happen. You can see the last vestiges of those structures, those systems fighting it. Trump's president and all those people who support him, they're of that school. They want to hold on to that old world. You notice, you know, fascism always comes from the right. You know, they don't want progress. They want to keep it the same. And no matter what age it is, whether you're going back to Genghis Khan or whatever, it's always been that. And, you know, then along comes this thing called a computer, the Internet. Now, I'm not into computers. I don't do it. They terrify me. But on the other hand, I look at them and I say, if this thing of the Internet, what's happening is the planet is rewiring its brain. It's rewiring consciousness. And eventually that becomes the thing that's going to allow people to see each other, going to allow people to hear each other's songs, to know each other's dances, to, to create a cultural, a planetary cultural reality that is going to be fought against by these people, and, it ain't, and they're not going to stop until they all die. And the new generations come up and say, oh, you know what? Just like, you know, my generation said to, you know, the older people in my generation, it's time for change. And that Internet is going to be the vehicle by which that planet is going to rewire itself. And that planetary consciousness is going to evolve. And that globalization that all the conservatives are terrified of and whatever kinks it has and whatever problems it has and all these other things, we're, we're going to be worked out because people are going to become rational at some point. And you say, well, how can that happen? That's because it's God's will. That was put into motion from the very beginning. The thing is, for us, we only live on this planet for, you know, 30, 40, or, or 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and we're gone. But on a planetary scale, it may take a few thousand years, but it's going to happen. We've, uh, we've talked a lot about God, and I know that uh, each one of your paintings is an experience, you know, between you and God. Who who is God? Is is there one God? Are there many gods? Are we all gods? Uh, how how do you make sense of of God and spirituality? <laughs> That's a good one. It's all 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 in above. You know the thing about the thing about God is that people are always looking for a definition. <clears throat> I can say God is everywhere. God is everything. God is in every atom and every molecule. God is light. God is consciousness. God is awareness. God is God is uh, more than the galaxy. You know, God is the concept of the perception of being by which we can't perceive anything more. No matter what you come up with, it's always more than that, and it's always a mystery. I like to describe the idea as this: like the, the I use the hurricane or tornado as my my metaphor. You have, you know, was it uh, Alan Moore? Alan Watts said, "We are a vortex of vibrations. This we are we are an aperture in the middle in in a in a complex of uh, of, of um, in a complex of uh, vibrations, a vortex. We are the hole in the center of that vortex. We're in other words, we're the eye of the hurricane. That's what you. That's the you that's perceiving me right now. Everything that you see of me, everything you hear." is your brain interpreting electrical magnetic impulses in your brain and translating them. What you see visually is coming in through your eye. And what you see is relative to the shape and the form of, uh, 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 and construction of your eye. If your eye was modified a little bit more so you could see more refined light, maybe you see angels standing next to me with little 
little charts with words telling me what to say, you know, uh, who knows? The, the, the thing, and it's the same with hearing. And it, it's not, the only time we know reality is when we touch, because then there's a direct contact. Everything that we experience is secondary. And in between the moments of those impulses, there's an eternity of time. You know, you get into quantum physics, and you discover that photons behave as if they're conscious. So then you say, well, doesn't that mean that light is conscious? Oh, but everything's made of light. All of this matter is little tiny, you know, uh, vibrational units of light that are both particles and waves that are reflected. And those things are self-aware because you are an idea, you're self-aware. You're the nothingness in the hurricane. And all that activity around you, that's what you're, that's the physicality of your world. That's this talk, that's this room, that's this everything that you are. And for me, Christ, he is the vortex of that universe. Each one of us is an individual little aperture, a little vortex. And at the center of that is this little nothingness there called soul. And in that place, that's where perception is taking place. And what is perception? Once again, it can't be defined in material terms. And so when you're dealing with God, it's, it's, it's the silence that the universe sits upon. When you're talking about God, it's the consciousness of all being. You know, it's everything God makes is beautiful. You can be in a desert, it's beautiful. You can be in the North Pole, it's beautiful. You could be in the jungles, it's beautiful. You can be in the bottom of the, uh, the ocean, it's beautiful. We jacking up because we project our egos into everything. And our egos are what? It's a, it's a psychological construct. It's not real. Any more than the image you see in the mirror is real because it's the image is reversed. So right from the onset, you're, you're seeing a tainted image, you know? So if you bear that in mind, it gives you a foothold on trying to understand these concepts of God. And at that point, you reach a certain point where it doesn't matter. There is only, there's one, they always, the one only common denominator is God is one. And that means one, period, boom, cross the board, everything. And how that works, well, our little feeble minds have a real hard time trying to figure that out. And that's why faith exists. And faith, what is faith? Faith is that vector point where Mind, that idea, that nothingness, connects into matter, and it has an effect. Why do placebos work? If you ask scientists, one of the great mysteries in science is the placebo. I have a little story about that. Um, years ago, I, in the early 90s, I got uh, in my left arm what they call, the doctor called ball socket disease. And I couldn't raise my arm higher than that. I couldn't. It hurt constantly. It was pulsing. It was just... I, I was taking 800 milligram pills of, of ibuprofen. I was, I was miserable. And they wanted to take my... They wanted to do an operation and replace my ball and socket, which I fought them on because I would not be able to paint the way I was. It was going to affect my arm's abilities. And uh, one day, a friend of mine, Carlos Martinez, he says, I got to go to Santa Fe and Taos, or uh, uh, I got to go to TMIO and, and Santa Fe to do some business. Do you want to go along for the ride? And I said, sure. And I mentioned it to my friend Carlota Espinosa, who's this wonderful artist. 
very spiritual. She said, oh, you're going to the santuario, or the, the santuario in Chimayo. I said, can you get me some of that soil, some of that dirt? And I had never heard about that. I didn't know anything about that. And she told me the story. And I said, okay, yeah, I'll get some. So I went, and I was really nervous. I wasn't Catholic. I'm Catholic now, but I wasn't Catholic then. And I was, I was really freaked out about being there. But then I walked into that little room just before you get to the, where the dirt is, and it was filled with all of these, these uh, crutches and wheelchairs and, and mementos of people who had been there and miracles had happened. And I went, holy cow, I, this is serious. This is really serious. I mean, because the place was packed with all this stuff. So I nervously went over, got my dirt, put it in a little sandwich bag, and went back to the car. Got in, we were driving down a highway, going to uh, Santa Fe. And I said to Carlos, I said, wow, I said, that, that was really impressive. I said, what I, I said, I wonder if this stuff works. So I took a little bit of the dirt out of the bag and I rubbed it on my shoulder. The second I rubbed it on my shoulder, the pain stopped. Bam. Just like that. Boom. And I just went, ah! <laughs> I got, I went hysterical. I just started jumping up and down on the things. He was yelling at me to settle down. And I was just ranting and raving and just like, oh, it's a miracle. Praise God. Oh. I just went crazy. And for 30 minutes, I went on and on and on. Then all of a sudden, I just kind of stopped and I went, what I don't understand is, is after all these years and all these centuries, I said, how come that little hole still has dirt in it? And Carlos says, well, that's because they fill it up every day. <laughs> Boom! The pain came back. Just like that. Just, ah, it just knocked me over, and, and, I, and it's like he popped my little bubble. And for years, I tried to figure out what happened there. Why did that happen? And I finally came to the realization that even though I wasn't Catholic, even though I had no reason to believe it would work, I had no, nothing. It was just a, a goof on my behalf. I was just trying it out, you know, sticking my toe in the water, you know. The reason it worked was because I made the gesture. gesture. It was the act. It was the doing and that's what I'm talking about, faith. It's what we do that matters. Not just what we think or we pray or whatever. That's all part of it. But we have to do. By acts, ye are saved. Jesus said that. And I realized that when I made that gesture, it worked. And when he said that, my reason, my intellect, Cancel, cancel the appointment, you know? It just, boom, that was it. But I've learned since then that when you do anything that you consider sacred or spiritual, you can believe all you want. Belief is just an idea that you hold in your head and, and it's your ego's kind of holding it to the ground there. It's what's in your heart. That's why they always talk about the heart. And that is in the way you do the act. If you do the act and it's and your heart is open, that's going to work. And that's the way, and as I said, faith is that juncture point. I really, I really appreciate what you were saying about, you know, the heart and um, 
you know, I've, I've been studying the heart as a as a very powerful organ. It's often it's such a cliche at this point, and and you know we we bypass its its power a lot, and we give a lot of power to the brain, you know, just based on who we are in society in the West at least, and and this certain particular paradigm. So we we often don't give enough credence to the power of the heart and and how it actually has a much higher. It, it has a very powerful capacity in regards to resonating with the world and and uh, bringing dreams into reality based off of what you believe in your heart. Uh, circling around to uh, your website, on your website, you have um, these stories that you've written out that reflect visions that you've had, um, different parts of your journey, different walks um, that you've that you've had. Um, and they're really interesting and they're really beautiful. And the very first one that I, you know, felt called to click on was this story called Moonwalk. And I <laughs> was smiling in the cafe the whole entire time I was reading it. I was like, this is so great. <laughs> this is so cool. This is so interesting. And different parts of it, of course, were resonating. And I, I wanted to ask you about this story, this story um, called Moonwalk. Um, I wanted to ask about, you know, this article, you know, that, that is mentioned. And man, where did you find that article? Like, who wrote that? Like, what publication is it in? Um, so can you tell us about that story? Okay. Uh, that happened on... Uh so was it July nineteenth? It was nineteen sixty nine when they did the moonwalk. It was on. It was. It was right at the. Uh, right after when Armstrong had stepped off on the moon. And I have to preface this with the fact that I had uh, at that time. <clears throat> I had. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I had uh, left Laramie in in uh, October of 1968, and I went to a town called Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to work with uh, my uncles in a re- in a factory. Uh, it was called Collins Radio, and Collins Radio employed about 15,000 people. And what we did <clears throat> was made radios for airlines, and we had the Apollo moonshot contracts. And uh, you could always tell when a job that you were going to do was Apollo moon because they had certain designations on the the work orders and uh uh, i worked there for six months and then i left well i had when i worked there i had taken this little copper um it looked like a little piston it was a a little uh round thing with a couple of holes in it and I, i wore it around my neck as a necklace and the reason i did it was because i knew that was a part that was going to go on a radio that went to the moon and because you always knew, like I said, what were the parts that were going for moon radios. So I wanted a memento. So I wore it around my neck, which I think in a sense sort of maybe gave me a connection or something. I don't know. But anyway, in, uh, on that night of the, the moonshot, my, I went uh, up in Laramie. There's this uh, hill called Ninth Street Hill. And it's Lover's Lane. It's where all the kids go to make out and, and, and they look over the town and... And we went up there, and we we were cavorting that night. That's what we used to get in my friend Chuck's magic, uh, we call it the magic bus. It was a Volkswagen bus. And we would uh, go out there and party. And I was always the brooding philosopher. I was always, while everybody else was getting loaded and high, I would be the guy who would sit in a corner, you know, thinking about God. And uh, so I was sitting off a little ways from the, the, a few yards from the, the van, 
And this red car came run, coming up the, the hill really fast. And it was a guy named Kent Madison. He was driving this red car. I don't remember what kind of car it was. And he said, hey, guys, hey, guys, check this out. Check this out. This is really wild, man. And, I, and, and so they all gathered around. And he started to read out loud. And I could hear him clearly. And he started to read this article that began to the effect that said, if you're reading this article, the article that you're reading right now, the words that you're reading right now will not be the words that you read if you read this article tomorrow. The words will be different. And you won't remember what you're reading right now. So you got to remember. And everybody's going, oh, wow, that's cool. What is that? What are they talking about? So he started to read this thing, and it basically described the moon landing. And it said that the world is expecting Armstrong to step onto a dead, lifeless planet uh, full of dirt and uh, dust and stuff. And it said, but this is what really happened. Now, in the historical thing, there's a glitch. From what I understand, that when Armstrong stepped off of the, the ladder onto the moon, there's a glitch in the film or the, 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 the thing that projected back to the world. They said in that glitch, he stepped into another dimension. And while he was standing there looking around, he was, he was stunned because instead of stepping onto a dead, lifeless planet, he was stepping onto this green, lush, beautiful paradise. And he looked around him, and he was like with his mouth hanging open. He couldn't know what to say. And as he stood there, he could see off in the distance the lights of a golden city. Uh, and he was thinking, what is going on? And just then he saw something fluttering in the air. And please... This is what I remember, okay? This is what he said. So this gets really strange. And this, what came fluttering towards him with this little purple fairy, this, this woman that had these large purple wings. And she fluttered up to him, and he was sitting there in a state of shock. And she mentally sent a message to him saying, telling him to follow her, that he was gonna, she was going to show him the moon as it really looks, as it really is. And he didn't say anything. He just started to follow her. And she took him to this golden city that was filled with gold, tall golden people with gold eyes. They had big gold yellow eyes. And he said that they acted like they couldn't see him. But he stood there and she wandered around and she showed him this world. She said, and then she took him back to where he, she found him. And she said, you don't see the world as it really is. Your world is a collective vision that you all see what you expect to see, and it reflects the nature of your consciousness. He says, the world, these, all the planets in this solar system are filled with people. They're filled with beings, and they're all beautiful, and they're all united, but except you. You're disconnected. You're just not, you don't know what's really going on. So this vision has been allowed you to go through and to penetrate through your technology so that the chosen few will be able to see this and remember it and affect changes in the future that will lead you to understand and see this world eventually. And the next thing he knew, he was stepping onto a dead, lifeless planet, the moon, and he immediately forgot what he had just experienced. Okay, at that point, I was listening to this and I went, whoa, what was this? And the reporter even said, I don't even know how I'm typing this. And just at that point, I remembered something. I used to work the midnight shift or the, the, the late shift at the factory. I worked from 12 noon to, uh, I mean, uh, 4 o'clock in the afternoon till 12 midnight. And when I would get off of work, I would go home and uh, I was living with my uncle. 
And I would unwind by watching this TV show called The Joe Pine Show. And you can look this up. I mean, this is this guy was this insane ex-Marine, had a wooden leg, and he had this TV talk show where he would invite every weirdo and freak on his show. And back in those days, they were coming out of the woodwork. Every cult, every thing, every magic, every guru, every... Uh, there was just night after night after night, all these things, political weirdos and revolutionaries and all this other stuff. And he would get them on his show. He would let them make their little speech, and then he would cream them. He would just, he would just rip them apart. He would just... And in some cases, he would get physical with them. He was... He would literally throw them off of his stage and stuff. Well, one night there was this one couple, and there was a girl and, and a guy. These, uh, they had long hair. He had long hair. She had. They were dressed real folksy. And they proceeded to say that they were from the cult of Michael. And in this cult, they believed that, that our solar system was parallel to another solar system, and that one was negative and one was positive. And that these two, these two solar systems had an accident. And that in that accident, a soul, and he says, it's like two trains running parallel. One train is empty and the other train is full. And what happened, it was a glitch in the railroad, and a bunch of the souls from the full train dumped off into the empty train, and they were stuck. They couldn't get back onto the other train because the trains righted themselves and were back on the right tracks. But but all these souls were trapped on this, soul, this, this empty train. And he said, those are the souls here on Earth. And he said, we have been here reincarnating and going through all these cycles of life and going through one thing after another and trying to evolve ourselves. And that Michael was this equivalent to Archangel Michael from the Bible, that this Michael was a great scientist who was one by one finding the vibrational frequency of each soul and vibrating them back into the right world. And she said, and the culture in this world is very akin to the cultures that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote about in his Tolkien books. He said he was deriving his images or his concepts from this culture that exists on this other plane. And that people who disappeared, people who went up in flames, people who did this, he said, these, this phenomenon was all, was all people who Michael was pulling over. But the problem was, is he couldn't get and if people over at the time, and it's been going on for thousands and thousands of years, and that, that, that Michael had sent great teachers to teach us to adjust the frequency, the collective frequency of the planet to the frequency of love, because with that, he could zap everybody back over where we belonged. And that this and this train would go ahead and continue running empty like it was supposed to. That's why all of the planets in our solar system were dead and lifeless. They were just rocks floating in space. And uh, at that point, I was seeing all of this in my head. I mean, I was seeing this TV program. I was remembering every word. And this couple, when they delivered their message, they just got up and they walked off the show. And Joe Pine went hysterical because he had 30 minutes of airtime to fill, and he had no guests. And he was just going nuts, you know, yelling and screaming and cussing and, and going on and on and on. And, and, and I was laughing my head off. I thought, oh, this is so cool. And they said, and they said before they left, they said, those, those, they, said they came on the show to deliver this message, and those certain people out there who were going to hear this would remember this at the right time and— the message would extend itself, and they would know who they were. But this was for the future. 
like I said, and I was sitting there and I was remembering that. Uh, just then when I opened my eyes from this Joe Pine show, I looked out and Laramie was gone. There was no Laramie. And my friends were gone. And I was sitting there and I was stark naked. I was totally, you know, because I was sitting across late. And uh, I, I looked at, towards Laramie and what had been Laramie was these undulating, pulsating tish, brain tissue. Everything had begun become a gigantic, living, pulsating brain. And you could see the veins running through it. You could see the blood pumping. You could see everything. And I looked up. And at the top of the sky, I saw the skull cap. I saw, here's the brain, and here's the skull cap. And you could see veins running through the skull cap and, and all this stuff. And I thought, we're all part of a greater being. And as I stood there looking at it, there was little flashes of lightning that were going through the skull cap and were jumping to the brain. It would connect into nerves connected to the brain. And that point, I looked down at my legs, and I tried to get up, and I couldn't. I, I couldn't move. I was... I was attached to the brain. My butt was literally part of it. Like I was like a ward or something coming out of this brain. And I looked down and I could touch it. I touched it. I pushed down on it. I felt all around. It was warm. It was pulsating. And it was alive. And it was conscious. I knew it was conscious. I just knew that. And I went, wow. I says, the, the universe is a gigantic mind. This is all mind. And uh, And at that point... I was like I said, I was watching the these lightning bolts come down and it would connect in with the earth. And then there was one that flew across and it was going real slow and all of a sudden it moved, it kind of turned and it went right towards me. And I just stood there staring at it and it hit me. And when it hit me, I went into just white light. I all I could see was white light. And I was just no thought, no being, no nothing. It was just stillness. And just then I went, wow. And when I did that, everything went back to normal. And my friends were all over here making their noise and stuff. Ken had put away the magazine, the newspaper, and they were all carrying on as if nothing had happened. The newspaper, by the way, I think was a Rocky Mountain News. And it was one of the inserts. And I went later, years later, I went and I went to the libraries and I went through every issue of the Rocky Mountain News and of the Denver Post to find that article. Never found it, but I did find an article that had the same picture on the front. Mm -hmm. But the story was about the moon landing and how Armstrong got off of the moon and said, you know, that line he says about one step for mankind, that's whatever, blah, 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 whatever that was. And uh, uh, and then I went later and I looked up Kent and two of my friends who were there with me yet that night, and they remembered the event. They remembered Kent come up this thing, and he read this thing, and that they oohed and awed over it. And then I asked them, do you remember what the article was about? And none of them could remember what the article was about. So it was one of those memories that it was stuck with me. And and it, and I, I wrote it down back then, and then later when I wrote it for my website, I just rewrote it and, and put it out there. But... The, the point in all this is, is where does this, I've done a series of paintings. I did a painting called The Big Bang, which depicts this person sitting on a cushion of made of his brain and he's seeing the beginning of, of creation. I'm doing, I did another piece called Atlas, where Atlas is holding a huge giant brain and he's sitting in space and there's all these celestial beings standing around him and the, and the, and it's the sun, but the sun is, is brain tissue. And it's on, it's flaming. I'm doing another one called Sombrero, 
which is a gigantic uh, sombrero nebula, and with the top of it, there's a brain there, and the brain is putting out bubbles, and the bubbles have reality spaces, producing different kinds of reality and perception. And underneath it, wearing the hat, is a male and female androgynous being that are fused. Their faces are, you know, they're, they're, they're one face. There's a the male face and there's a the female face, and they're combined. And then I'm doing, uh, I did one, I just did called The Guardian of the Void, where a man, a monk is standing there, and he's standing over, he's floating over um, a square, which is empty, which represents the void, which represents the, the, the mystery of existence. And above him is a, is a, is a square with a, with a ball in it, representing existence. And then around it, all of this is emerging out of a brain, and out of the brain, these bubbles of with creating universes and people's faces and stuff are emerging out of that. And I got a couple other brain pieces that are doing, and all of them are based upon the idea. Going back to what you were asking me about perception of God, is the universe is mind, the universe is thought. It's a three-dimensional hard light hologram. It's composed of light. The light is God's thought. It is it is the same awareness and 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 being that we each are as we perceive. We are perceptual beings. You are a perception, you know. And you're not. And in meditation, if you get into meditation and 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 what they call contemplative prayer, that's what those things teach you. They teach you how to disconnect from all the temporal aspects of your being and just become pure consciousness. And then when you become pure consciousness, all of a sudden you're amorphous. You're 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 part of the one and the whole. And uh and that's extraordinary when you do that. And, and the more you do it, the more you practice it, it really refreshes you. But anyway, <laughs> thank you, uh, thank you, Stevan, for sharing your stories with us. Thank you for sharing uh, your visions of uh, the world and uh, the universe and the universes. Um, we greatly appreciate you and your art. Uh, for all of our listeners, please uh, look for uh, Mr. Stevan Lucero's work. Buy some prints. Buy some original paintings. Read his stories on his website. Uh, we will be linking to his work. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, one final question uh, before we sign off. And, um, you know, being, uh, being from Wyoming myself, you know, I'm from Rollins. Um, I spent about eight years in Laramie. And, uh, you know, there's people who will, you know, find out that I'm from Wyoming and they'll be like, oh, man, I didn't know Chicanos were up there, you know. <laughs> or they'll say, I didn't, oh, I didn't realize that, uh, man, I didn't know people had soul up there, you know, or I didn't realize there was culture up there like that. And I'm like, man, we're everywhere, you know? <laughs> but um, I guess I want to ask you for uh, for people who do not come from, um, you know, uh, a family of artists, musicians, for people who do not come from, um, you know, cities, metropolises, where there is a lot of creativity and culture and, you know, uh, centers of spirituality, you know, I'm thinking about uh, young people on the margins, whether it's within the city or thinking about people from these small towns or from the reservation, you know, for anybody who's listening, who may be, you know, from somewhere that somebody thinks is nowhere, what is your advice for young people to find 
spirit, to find culture, to find uh, their purpose within this reality. Especially coming from a place like Wyoming. Yeah. Well, you know, the only art form that the Europeans ever attributed to the United States outside of uh, blues or jazz is uh, uh, abstract expressionism, which was created by Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock was from Cody, Wyoming. <laughs> so we're going up for Wyoming. Uh, you know, sometimes I look back and I think, you know, growing up in Wyoming was torturous. Now that I'm 67, thought a lot about it. And, you know, it's like, you know, people are what they are. People are primitive. People are good. People are bad, whatever. Every kid faces his own struggle. Every, every you know, if, if you come up in a lo loving household, it doesn't matter where you're, where you're at, you know. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that in the end, we make up our own minds. We make our own decisions. And when it comes to, you know, talking to young people about, especially about being an artist, it doesn't matter whether you come from the city or you come from the rural areas. If, if you come from the rural areas, then in a sense, you're more innocent. In a, in a sense, there's more to learn, and that can be very exciting. Uh, but the thing that you have to learn is that, one, you're going to get your butt kicked. It's hard. It's hard to be an artist. You know, in our society, when people say, well, what are the careers? Well, politicians and businessmen and da, da, da. You have these categories. And the artist is always placed up there real high. But in the, the, the acceptance of the culture to the people, people maybe praise them and they overly uh, uh, worship them and stuff like that. You know, stars, everybody wants to be a star. The thing is, it's not easy for anybody. Especially if you're going to try to be original. If you're going to try to be where you're speaking your own mind, your own soul. If you want to imitate or follow a, a, an order that's already followed, well, then, you know, that's fine. You know, th that's okay. You're going to, you, you might have, have a decent living. Uh, you could have a great living. But if you are going to step out on the, the, into the desert, as I call it, and walk that path and find your way to that. Be ready to pay for it. It's, you, will, you will experience heartache, rejection, and whatever. But, and this is something else I tell people, there's this moment, whether it be painting, or whether you're a musician, whether you're a poet, there's a point where you create something and you step back and you look at it and you go, holy crap, where did that come from? That come out of me? And then you get this feeling of elation. You get this feeling of bliss. You get this feeling of joy. Remember when I was explaining the thing about walking with the master? One of the things i got to emphasize here is the joy that I felt just standing near him. The joy was so powerful that even as when I think about it, I can feel it. And this is what art does. When you... I call them uh, aesthetic satories, <clears throat> and that means when the two become the one. When you and what you're doing, whatever the medium is, whatever it is, when that those things merge and they become one, you know it. And in that moment, you are unique in the universe. Because no matter what you say, no matter what you do, somebody else has already said it and somebody else has already done it. None of us original in that way, except 
that one moment when we sing that song or write that song in a certain way or that poem or that book or that painting or anything that we create, anything that we have lost ourselves in, suspended ourselves in, and we touch that. And then you say, that's why I'm doing this. That's the reward. Somebody gives me a few bucks for it, fine. But that's not the point. And if you can get a young person to understand that, you can capture them. There was a guy, there was a kid who came in, his name was Jose. And he came in, he said, he was looking at my art and he started asking me all these questions and I was talking to him. And he says, I want to I want to ask you a question and you got to make me a promise that you, you're going to tell me the truth. I said, well, I've been telling you the truth so far. I mean, if if you're having problems, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't mean to. And he says, no, no. And he says, if I decide to be an artist, what can I expect? And I told him the things that I'm telling you. And, and I told him, I said, depends what kind of artist you want to be. If you want to tell the truth, you're going you're gonna to pay a price for it. And he said, thank you. And he got up and he left. But 10, 15 minutes later, I'm standing there, somebody comes in and says, hey, you know, there's a guy out front there, and this is in front of Chalk. So there's a guy out front there, and he's crying. And, uh, and seeing this kid had told me that he had been a junkie. He had lived on the street for most of his life. He had parents had abused him. He had, this guy, kid had a terrible, he showed me all the scars on his arms, all the needle marks and the suicides that he attempted. This kid was tragic. And he says, that kid out there is crying. He's weeping like a child. I said, wow. And I said, really? He says, and he's telling everybody to go in there and talk to you. Because he said, you're the man who tells the truth. You know, I was really moved by that. Because I'm just doing what I do. But I touched his heart in that moment. And I hope that he went off and he did whatever he did. But he went out there and was telling people, this is the man who speaks the truth. He's the only person who's ever told me the truth. That was an honor for him, for me to hear that he did that. And those are the things that nobody can take away from you. Those belong to you. And it's not anything that's going to make you famous or make have people give you money about. It's just something that I can, when I sit in my chair and I'm sitting in my shadows and I'm thinking and I'm meditating or whatever, and I can remember him, I feel blessed. Palabra. On that note, To all of our artists out there listening, and each one of you is in fact an artist. Every moment is a song. Every meal that you cook is a poem. Every life is a work of art. We hope that you have thoroughly enjoyed uh, your time with uh, our guest, Mr. Stevan Lucero. And I'm going to pass the palabra to Ms. Love Mestiza for the final word. Mil gracias for listening to Brown Genius. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes and spread the word. You can find us at browngeniuspodcast.com and on Instagram and Facebook. Brown Genius is hosted by Molina Speaks and Cherie Love Mestiza Brown. Produced by Rodney Sino Cruz. 